Last week, we talked about a woman named Sarah Farkas. I told you her story. She's a woman who God asked to donate one of her kidneys uh, to a person in her church that she didn't know very well uh, at all. And we used her story to talk about being a righteous sufferer. And I made the point that according to the Bible, righteous sufferers are blessed, more so even than those who simply keep the law or those who are repentant sinners, that God pours out his blessings on those who walk the path of being the righteous sufferer. The problem is, is I'm not sure last week I did a very good job of defining what exactly it means to be a righteous sufferer. And many may have left and thought, well, do I qualify? Is what I'm going through one of those things? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to go back and perhaps provide a little more definition. What does it mean to be a righteous sufferer to help us all think about the situation we're going through? Does it fit? As well as look at a danger that everybody who walks the road of being a righteous sufferer at one point or another can find themselves tempted with. Well, when you think about what does it mean to be a righteous sufferer, first and foremost, it means not suffering because of something you've done wrong. So if you're, not, if you're being lazy at work and you get laid off or you get fired, that's not righteous suffering. So that's categorically very different. And Peter has made a, a, a big point of the fact, look, we suffer sometimes for doing the wrong thing. That's different. That's different. God's grace can still be present in the midst of that situation, absolutely. But a righteous sufferer, first and foremost, is someone who suffers for doing what's right, not for doing what's wrong. But within that category, Peter describes the righteous sufferer using the phrase, suffering for what is right, or suffering for righteousness' sake. Now that's a broad category, and lots of things can fit into that category. For example, of course, being persecuted for being a Christian. That's the prime example of being the righteous sufferer. If you have been persecuted for your faith, you very much qualify as being a righteous sufferer. But it's broader than that. Take Mary, for example. We mentioned her name last week. Mary was asked by God and given the very difficult assignment by God of giving birth to the Messiah. And think about the circumstances in which she had to do this. She had to do this as an unwed mother with all of the accompanying shame and scandal in that culture. She had to raise the Messiah and then watch him be crucified. This is why it's said of Mary, a sword will pierce your soul also because she was asked to walk such a hard road. She wasn't being persecuted for being a follower of God, nor had she done anything wrong, but still hers is an example of being a righteous sufferer. So to you and I, if we're given a difficult assignment by God in his kingdom to advance his kingdom, even if it doesn't involve persecution, it still can be an example of being a righteous sufferer. Or take the example of Job. Job is the example of the righteous sufferer, the best example in the Old Testament. But Job lost loved ones and experienced health difficulties not because he was being persecuted for being a follower of God, or even because he'd done anything wrong. Job found himself in the middle of a spiritual warfare battle that he never asked to be part of. He didn't do anything to bring it about. And the suffering that he experienced was a result of something God wanted to do in the midst of that spiritual warfare to bring glory to himself. 
And so sometimes the loss of a loved one or the health trials that we go through, those too count as being part of the righteous sufferer. Or suppose that at work, you've been trying to do what is right. Maybe you have decided not to sacrifice your family on the altar of job and success. And as a result, your coworkers or your boss have become antagonistic towards you. It may not be persecution for being a Christian. It may simply be persecution for trying to do the right thing because the world doesn't like that. That too is what Peter is talking about when he says, suffering for doing what is right. And so what we see is when we think about being a righteous sufferer, there's a continuum. It's a broad category. At the one end is persecuted for being a Christian, but also health issues that we go through, loss of loved one, difficult assignments from God, spiritual warfare, trying to live rightly in this world. There can be a whole list of things that can qualify for being a righteous sufferer. Well, one of those things in that continuum is Sarah's story that I shared with you last week. Being asked by God to give a kidney to a man that she didn't know very well, that's a difficult assignment. That fits within the definition of what it means to be a righteous sufferer. But one of the dangers that happens, and I told you at the beginning of the sermon, that anybody who's asked to walk the road of being the righteous sufferer, one danger that always rears its head may have happened for you last week. As I told the story of Sarah Farkas being asked to give her kidney, you may be looking at your own situation. Maybe you've lost a child. Maybe you've been diagnosed with ALS. Maybe you've been asked to walk some hard road. And when you hear about Sarah Farkas and her story, maybe somewhere in the back of your mind or in the deep recesses of your heart, you said, well, I'd take that in a heartbeat. I'd much rather have that than what I'm going through. Why didn't God give me that assignment? I'd gladly give my kidney and have my child back. I'd gladly give my kidney and have this ALS uh, uh, go away. I'd gladly give my kidney, be able to save somebody's life, be on the front page of the newspaper, be a hero. Why was I given this assignment and she was given that assignment? See, one of the great dangers, the great danger, I think, for the righteous sufferer is to compare our suffering to what others are going through. You see, when we suffer for doing something wrong, well, that makes sense because we look at other people and their lives are going better than ours and we think, well, that, that's fine. They made better choices than I did. I'm suffering the consequences of my own, my own choices. And we got no problem with that. But the righteous sufferer is not suffering because they did something wrong. The righteous sufferer has been assigned a journey to go on, a difficult task. And it's very easy when you get that assignment to look around at other people and say, well, how come I got this one and they got those? Why couldn't I have one of those? And so this morning we want to think together about this very dangerous thing of comparing our suffering to the people around us. So if you have a Bible, please turn to the book of John, chapter 21. The book of John, chapter 21. In the church Bibles, it's page 882. John, chapter 21. Now, for the most part, our series, which we've entitled Refuge, has been from the writings of Peter. We've spent a good portion of our time this year in 1 Peter. But we said at the beginning that this is really a series that is about the apostle Peter, 
Much of it comes from his writings, but also there are going to be times in which we take a look at episodes from his life. This morning is one of those times, and the reason we're doing this is because we feel that God is not only speaking to us through the words that Peter wrote, but also through the stories that Peter himself experienced that gave rise to the words that he wrote. And so more, this morning we're looking at a specific story from the life of Peter. Now, to set the context for what we're going to hear in John 21, this is a resurrection appearance. Jesus has been crucified and raised from the dead, and he's going to appear to his disciples, specifically Peter. Now, he does so on a beach on the Sea of Galilee, and he's there to meet with the other disciples, but specifically to meet with Peter. And the way that we know that is, is that Jesus seeks Peter out, he finds him and he pulls him off to the side for a little bit of a semi-private conversation. And Jesus says to Peter three times, Peter, do you love me? Now the reason he asks three times is the last time we saw Jesus and Peter together, they were in a courtyard and Peter was saying three times, I don't know that guy. I'm not with him. And so Jesus has appeared to Peter having died for that sin being raised from the dead, there to offer restoration, there to offer forgiveness. And Jesus has gone out of his way to get alone with Peter to say, Peter, let's fix this thing. Do you love me, Peter? And each time after Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus says, take care of my disciples. And Jesus is restoring Peter to that position of leadership that Jesus had chosen for him, that Peter had abdicated because of his denials of Christ. It's a beautiful scene. But at the end of that beautiful scene, Jesus says some very difficult things to Peter. We begin in verse 18. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. We think that's John, the writer of this gospel. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Now when Jesus says to Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your arms, this is a reference to the crucifixion. This is a reference to the fact Jesus is telling Peter, you're going to be crucified. That's why he says, John says, Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Stretching out your hands in the ancient world, this was a reference to crucifixion. And what Jesus is saying to Peter is, Peter, I'm telling you, when you are old, you're going to experience crucifixion. Now, this had to be a stunning blow. This had to be very hard for Peter. Remember, we're probably only a week out from Peter's denial, maybe a little less, maybe a little bit more. But why did Peter deny Jesus in that courtyard? Well, Jesus is on his way to being crucified. And Peter knows if I'm with him, I could end up on a cross next to him. 
and he thinks, I don't want that. He's petrified of crucifixion. Who wouldn't be? This is why Jesus is not joking when he says, you will be led where you don't want to go. It may be that crucifixion is Peter's worst nightmare. That the idea of dying in this way is so horrifying to him that it caused him in that Caiaphas' courtyard to deny Jesus. And now Jesus is telling him, that thing you most fear, that will be your future. Not because you sinned, but because you do everything right. This is the example of being a righteous sufferer. Well, Peter's first response when he hears this is often the response of most righteous sufferers. He looks around and says, well, what about John? <laughs> now, the reason he's asking this is, in part, misery loves company. And Peter's saying, okay, look, if this is what it's going to take to be a follower of you, if I'm going to have to go through this and John is going to have to go through this and all the rest of the disciples are going to have to go through this, okay, it's not great. But if that's what was required, if that's what's required to get to heaven, then I'm willing to do it. You see, if you've been around young children, you'll know that somehow God hardwired into them, or maybe it's their fallen nature, I don't know. The idea that fair means identical. That only what is fair is if something identical happens. So he got an hour of video games, I should get an hour of video games. She gets to stay up till 10 p.m. when she turned 13. I should stay up till 10 p.m. when I turn 13. Now, when we become adults or parents, we begin to realize that's not really how fairness works. That maybe you have a child uh, who needs to go to a Christian school and you have another child who needs to go to a public school. Well, it's much more expensive to send the child to the Christian school and so you're obviously spending more money on one child for education than you are on the other. But as a parent or as an adult, you realize that fair doesn't mean identical. What fair means is treating each child individually according to their needs in a way that is loving and kind to them. But the problem is that sometimes as Christians, when it comes to God, we fall back into that mindset of children, which is fair must be identical. And so Peter looks over at John and says, wow, I got a tough blow here. What about him? And Peter's asking the question that every righteous sufferer really is asking. God, are you being fair? Is this fair that I'm being asked to go through this? And the fear of every righteous sufferer is that somehow I'm being picked on by God that I've been forgotten about by God, that I've been abandoned by God, that even though, because if we had done something wrong, okay, fine. But I've tried to do everything right, and this is, this is what I get. Peter says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow you, and what I'm going to get is crucifixion. God, is this right? Is this fair? Why are you treating me this way? Jesus seeks to reorient Peter's understanding of what is fair and to reorient our understanding as well. And he says in verse 22, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? Basically what Jesus is saying to Peter is, look Peter, I know this is a tough blow. 
I know that this is hard to hear this. I know that you are not going to enjoy this. But what I do with John is not really any of your concern. And if that sounds a little bit like a rebuke, I think it is. I think it's done kindly. But I think Jesus is trying to say to Peter, hey look, what happens with John is between me and John. And what happens with you is between me and you. It also is an affirmation that Jesus is the one who's in charge of choosing the suffering. Notice what he says, if I want him to remain alive. Now John makes, he goes to great lengths in the gospel to tell us that doesn't mean John was going to stay alive. But Jesus is basically saying, hey, look, if I want him to stay alive, if I want you to be crucified, that's my call. And this is the reminder that even though Peter will be crucified under Emperor Nero, we believe, that it's not ultimately Nero who's making this decision. Jesus is making this decision. The same thing for you or I. If we become friends with this person that God seemed to lead us to become friends with and that person betrays us and we suffer because of it, if a neighbor in our neighborhood seeks to ostracize us because we're a Christian or our boss picks on us because we are trying to live rightly, that ultimately it's not the boss or the neighbor or that friend alone that is causing the suffering. Ultimately, it's Jesus. It's Jesus that's asked us to walk that path. He may not be the cause of the suffering, but it's very clear here that Jesus is the one making these decisions when it comes to righteous suffering. And Peter says, look, if you pick this for me, well, what would you pick for him? And Jesus says, Peter, I love you, but that's not your concern. That's between me and John. This is between me and you. Now with that more negative, slight rebuke, Jesus ends his conversation with Peter on a very positive note. The last words that Jesus will say to Peter in the Gospel of John, you must follow me. Proverbs 14, verse 10 says, each heart knows its own bitterness. The problem with suffering is that it's a very lonely experience. When you go through suffering, you feel like you're the only one going through anything. That you look around and you think everyone else must be happy. Everyone else must be just living a wonderful life and you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulders. And it doesn't matter if somebody else has been through what you're going through right now, if somebody else has been asked to walk the hard road of singleness, or somebody else has had a spouse unfaithful to them, or somebody else has been wrongly accused and had rumors spread about them. It is useful to know that other people have been through this and that you're going to make it through, but at the end of the day, when you're in the middle of whatever suffering you're in the middle of, it's the most lonely place there is. There's nothing else in the Christian life that's nearly as lonely as it. And it's into the middle of this loneliness that Jesus speaks to Peter and says, come follow me. In other words, Peter, I'm going to go with you on this journey. 
See, the problem with us looking around at everybody else and saying, well, what's John going through? And what's Jim going through? And what's going to happen to her? And, and, and what about everybody else is that we're missing the point. The point of the suffering is not, hey, we got some suffering here. We need some people to endure it. The point is, as Jesus has said, Peter, I chose this specifically for you so that you and I could do this together. In the middle of the most lonely place there is, Jesus says, Peter, I'm going to go with you. I'm going to walk with you on the journey. I chose this for you, not to punish you, but so that we could do this together. And even more than that, Jesus says, Peter, follow me. Very literally, Jesus means I've been crucified. You're going to go through it too. And I'm going to be with you each step of the way. Imagine a father who says to one of his sons, come out and help me shovel the driveway. Of course, the son says back to the father, what about Sam? How come he gets to keep playing video games? Why doesn't he have to come too? To which the dad replies, this is something I want to do with you. This gives me an opportunity to spend time with you. This is a chance for me to teach you about hard work. This is a chance for me to bless you. I have other things I have planned for Sam. But this is something I have chosen for you. That's what Jesus is saying to Peter. Look, John is going to go through exile and persecution. That's the time Jesus gets with John. Jesus is saying, Peter, this is my time with you, just you and I. Peter, no one else will know what you're going through when you walk down that road of crucifixion, but I'm going to go with you. And that's what he says to you and to me this morning. Whatever that road of suffering you've been asked to walk down, if you are a righteous sufferer, if it's the loss of a loved one, if it's an illness, if it's difficulty at work, if it's persecution for being a Christian, if it's a hard assignment from God. The reason why we so want to put our eyes on everybody else is we want to think, well, as long as everybody's going through the same thing, we'll all be miserable together. And Jesus says, stop looking at them and start looking at me. I picked this for us. This is our opportunity to do this together. And Jesus is saying to Peter and to you and to me, follow me, I will lead you safely through this. And when we get to the other side, you will know me better. You will feel my love for you more strongly. And you will learn just how faithful I am. This morning we get to celebrate communion. Communion's a beautiful picture of what we're talking about. In just a moment you will be given a piece of bread and a cup. That bread represents Christ's body that was broken for you. The cup represents Christ's blood that was shed for you. Peter tells us the righteous, Jesus, suffered for the unrighteous, you and I, to bring us to God. Communion is the ultimate example of the righteous sufferer, Jesus, giving his life, not because he sinned, he didn't. Not because he made bad choices, suffering for our sins. And when you come to the communion table, if you're not yet a believer in Jesus, if you've not accepted his sacrifice as being your sacrifice, I simply ask that when the bread and the cup are passed, just let them pass you by. 
participate in the rest of the service, but this is a ceremony commemorating salvation. If you've not yet accepted salvation, you can do it right now. Simply accept that Jesus has given his life for your life. He's chosen to suffer for death for you and me so that we might have eternal life. If you are a believer in Jesus, when you receive that bread and you receive that cup, there's an opportunity to hold that in your hands and to think about the fact that not only did Jesus suffer for you, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he's calling you and I to follow him in whatever suffering he's assigned to us today. And as you think about that road that you've been asked to travel, my prayer is, is that as you hold that bread and that cup, that you hear Jesus' voice saying, Sue, come follow me. John, come follow me. Mark, don't be afraid, I'll be with you. And if it's an assignment of a difficult health journey, to hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, I'll walk with you every step of the way. If it's a prodigal child or grandchild, to hear Jesus say, don't be afraid, I'm with you. If it's a difficult assignment at work, a financial crisis, whatever it may be, that as you hold that bread in that cup, that you would hear Jesus whisper in your ear, don't be afraid, just believe. That you would hear Jesus say, look, I have walked that road myself. See, the amazing thing about Jesus is when he hung on that cross, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, when Jesus was asked to walk the road of being the lonely sufferer, the righteous sufferer, he had to do it all alone. He did it all alone so that you and I would never have to. And as you hold that bread in that cup, what Jesus is saying to you is, I have won the right to walk you through this. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. 